Welcome to Authors Revealed. I'm Becky Anderson. I am so thrilled. We have Naperville native Robert Fiesler here with his first debut book. It's an incredible history. It's called Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation. An incredible history taken from 1973. It's a book you will never forget and will really inform you. It is called Tinderbox. Bobby, welcome back to Naperville and to Anderson's. Oh so, my gosh. I know, this is so exciting. Happy I mean, to be here. Well, Happy no. to be in the bookstore I used to come to as a little kid. Yeah, well, we're honored because one of our own has his first book. It's out in the world, it's it officially is. on bookstore shelves today. Yes. Yeah, and we are so honored to be doing the launch event tonight here at Anderson's. Well, no, it's an honor for me, so thank you so much. I remember the first event I ever came to at Anderson's, which was when I came to see Julia Child with my parents. Oh, you're kidding. I remember and that my event. my father said that we cooked your German potato salad, and Julia Child responded to my dad, Oh, yes, I love that potato salad. We had it. I ate that with boiled beef on election night. <laughs> I remember that. I will remember that for the rest of my life. Well, I'll tell you what I remember. <laughs> Maybe you want to bleep this up. But she was sitting there at the table, and she's wearing a skirt, but her legs were like this. <laughs> it was very interesting. So that was our memory. But it was it was like having a complete legend here. It was just oh, absolutely. phenomenal. And what you saw in that voice, mm -hmm. it was it was totally Julia Child. No, yeah. it meant a lot to me too to be able to yeah. meet such an icon. Yeah. So it's but we're thrilled, and you know your family has has such a great history here in town. Oh my so, gosh. So it's so great to have you here. We're, we are so excited that um, this book, and this book, I can't tell you what an honor it is to have read it and to, and, and what it's going to do in the world. Oh, thank you. And it really, it's really going to show something that was hidden away for too long. Oh my gosh, And that we need you. to know about. So. That means so much yeah. to me. Thank you. No, it was really important to me to be able to write a queer history. I am a gay person. And then um, just the idea that I was a closeted gay kid who grew up in Naperville, that someday I would grow up. I, I mean, that kid never imagined that I would be able yeah. to write a book about this subject, about right. a fire at a gay bar in 1970s New Orleans, yeah. and then to publish it, and then to have an event here yeah. that people turn up to. I, I just, know. a part of me just went, pinch no. me, pinch me, no, please. No, well, pinch me too, because <laughs> we're so excited. But, you know, this is the untold story of the upstairs lounge and fire um, and the rise of, of gay liberation. Mm -hmm. And since it's just out today, I'd like to know, you know, knowing that this is this is the first day, and I know it's been reviewed and everything before, and I want to congratulate you, I forgot this. Oh my gosh. Starred reviews, and you got the mother load of all starred reviews. You got a Kirkus star. Oh, wow. The yeah. coveted Kirkus star. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That so, congratulations oh because my gosh. authors, they, they drool over trying to get that, that star. That was a so very special day. That was a yeah. very special day. I cried. And, you know, the other and I thing, tried to tell my mother why it was special, and she's like, What? Oh, it's it, incredibly special. It's only one star? She, she said, when well, you want to get, it, there's only one star or no star. Well, it's not like a Michelin star. You know? <laughs> right. This is the one star you want to get, and you got it. No, I was yeah. I was so thrilled. Yeah. So that's really, really incredible. Um, but also, too, you got, a, I think, a school library uh, star review, too, which is absolutely great. Thank so. you. Thank you. But how does it feel 
having this baby out in the world. It's on shelves and people are talking about it. And It's yeah. hard to believe. Um, so the process for this book started about five some years ago. Um, and it was, you know, before it was a book, it was a book proposal and me trying to work with an editor to convince him I was the guy to do it. Yeah. And it was two years of research during which even after you have a book contract, you tell p you people you're writing a book and everyone's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. how many people have you heard that from? Right. Including me. I've probably told people that at different phases of my life, I'm working on a book. Yeah. Then it was two years of writing it. And in the middle of writing this important book of queer history, the Pulse nightclub shooting happened right. down in Orlando sure. in 2016. And all of a sudden, the event I was writing about, the Upstairs Lounge Fire, which had been kind of relegated to a niche of gay history, yeah. um, was spoken about a lot. It, right. it became revived on social media and national news, and it was cited as this important historic antecedent to the lone wolf violence that was made manifest at Pulse. Right. And pictures right. of the Upstairs Lounge were going viral. And I, I know, it was incredible. And, I was just... Yeah. yeah, and it felt like I'm writing about this thing suddenly that everybody's talking yeah. about. It was the most unexpected thing. And then to for that to experience to have happened and then the next year of writing and then to have it out in the world, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, it's 45 years this year, isn't it? It is. It's going to be the yeah. 45th anniversary. 45th anniversary coming soon. Which it's is incredible. amazing when you think about it. And we're talking about this event right now. And then this is a specific kind of event where six months after the upstairs lounge fire, nobody wanted to talk about right. it in New Orleans or nationally. And it just says yeah. something about the, the quality of the event and the nature of this event that its legacy has built over the right. decades. And it especially speaks, I think, to the 21st century yeah. quite well. Yeah. So, so, you know, I know you mentioned, and it, well, one thing too, I love the blurbs on the book. You have some pretty incredible people oh, thank that you. gave you wonderful endorsements of the book. Samuel Friedman, oh, that's yeah, fantastic. that's my mentor. Yeah, yeah, right. That's my Dumbledore. Is he, oh, <laughs> yes, wonderful. He is. Oh, what he a might great be mad mentor. I said that, but, <laughs> <laughs> but also Blanche Cook, who, incredible historian. Oh, absolutely. Great blurb on there. And Andrew Solomon, wow. Such an honor. Yes, yeah, such an honor. Great blurbs on there. So, I know you mentioned that you were trying to pitch this idea to an editor, but tell yeah. us how you, how this started to grow for you, because sure. someone approached you about doing this. Yeah, so I had to decide whether or not this book would be right for me when I found out about the idea. I, I, I thought I knew a lot about LGBT history, mm -hmm. but it turns out there was this giant gap in my understanding. I My understanding went from the Stonewall riots, or sometimes right. called the Stonewall Rebellion in New York City in 1969, which was the event that was seen as kicking off the gay rights movement, right. or, the, or it was called the gay rights movement then. It skipped over to the late 70s, to the, essentially the assassination of Harvey Milk. And I didn't realize that no. There was a complete blank in my understanding of those early years for gay liberation. So I was intellectually interested mm -hmm. in that, but I know you can't just be intellectually interested to write a book. You have to be emotionally interested. Yeah. So um, I did have a personal stake in it. So um, uh, in 1995, uh, a man who I'll say is, was my uncle, um, but really he was my aunt's brother. We, he, we grew up calling him an uncle, um, died of AIDS. I was 13 years old. Mm -hmm. and. Um, when he passed away right around the time when I was coming to understand who I was mm -hmm. as, as a gay person. And um, I found out he was gay on the way to his, his funeral, uh. actually. And um, it's a, it's, I get emotional talking about it, yeah. but um, I thought I was the only one in the world. And then when he died, I thought he had been the only one like me, and it became a personal passion to try to understand his past and his history. Right. And then that led into my professional life, where I've always been interested in telling the stories of sort of marginalized groups overlooked people who make the world yeah. better for themselves and when so when that those two aspects came uh, 
sort of interacted when, when I became aware of the upstairs lounge fire, where all of a sudden I saw here was this historically significant moment in a historically significant movement at a historically significant time. And I'm like, how do people not know about this? How did I not know right, about it? Right. Um, and the answer was that for years and years, people were were told that this story didn't matter. And I think a lot of queer individuals in, in this country, and even sometimes myself included growing up, were told that our stories didn't matter. Mm -hmm. So of course, I, I had to tell this. Yeah, oh yeah. And I'm, we're so glad you did, because there's so much, that was the brilliant part of uh, all the research you did, but I'm burying all the things that were basically on purposely were ignored. Oh yes. Or hidden. Oh yes. Or were shamed into hiding. It yeah. was it was just incredible what you came up with in the research because oh, that's you. the most shocking part of the story. You know, of course, the first thing is the tragedy of all these 32 people who mm. lost their lives. But you know, the thing that that surprises me, you know, when you think of New Orleans where this oh, took yeah. place, and we think of New Orleans as this open city that sure. you know that people can be free to be live who they are live. and you yeah. always thought it it wasn't in the 70s mm, yeah. yeah and no, and you think that this 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 tragedy took place only about six seven blocks away from jackson square sure. when people think of it's the heart very true of of the french quarter and mm -hmm. everything so tell us a little bit about new orleans in the 70s and 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 basically what was happening with the upstairs lounge so new orleans in the 70s was something of a pressure cooker when it came to the subject of homosexuality especially specifically because new orleans in its unique sort of idiosyncratic creole culture had always allowed the vices any sort of vice prostitution, drug use, mm -hmm. dancing when that was considered a vice, alcohol when that was considered a vice, what have you, um, and homosexuality were all kind of shunted into um, a private realm, something you would never talk about but could exist under the rug, could right. exist in a right. kind of underworld. And there was a very proud tradition in New Orleans that where everyone can do these things, nobody talks about them. Mm -hmm. So long as you don't speak about it, so, lo so long as you don't own it, uh, own it in public, um, you will not provoke violent reprisals. And especially when it came to homosexuality, so long as you were an eligible bachelor, so long as your lover was a longtime companion, mm -hmm. or so long as you had, if you, especially if you were high society, you had what's called an uptown marriage, which was two gay men romantically involved in, with each other, but married to women with families, mm -hmm. you were permitted to exist in that society. It helped if you were also, if you were a bachelor, if you were called a millionaire bachelor, that ah, seemed to certify right, right, it. Sure. But so there was this long-standing tradition that um, there were that homosexuals could exist in New Orleans so long as they didn't call themselves homosexuals so long as they never it was the love that you know dare not speak his name yeah. to reference yeah. Oscar Wilde yeah. and that yeah. but so um, that um, clashed fundamentally especially in the 1970s with the wider realities of the sexual revolution and especially gay liberation the Stonewall rebellion had occurred right. they were starting to be gay political organizations from city to city and there was this wider push for homosexuals to come out of the closet to own their identities and to be quite radical and quite upfront about it and that did not work in New Orleans gay yeah. liberation had not reached that city in yeah. some sense the closet uh, New Orleans provided the closet's closet's best defense because closeted gay men could work could own a home could be rather successful right. but that created a large amount of tension with what was going on in the wider country mm-hmm 
You know, and, and what I, I, I found so interesting is that what Sundays would happen at the Upstairs Lounge yeah. and, and the MCC, which is the Metropolitan Community Church. Yeah. And people could go to church in the morning and then yeah. come back for... for oh, I'm glad you broke that out. Yeah, you yeah. Know, and I, I love that because there's some... And I, I think the other thing about the book I love because, and it's not that you were you were listing a, a cast of characters, but in a way, but the real people from the different parts yeah. of what made up this whole story and what was hidden away, you know, from from the gay community, you list or the people who were part of the up, upstairs lounge, but also to whether it was politicians or oh, yeah. it's, you know, from the activist community, or you had a list of those of the the, those politicians oh, yeah. and some very famous politicians that basically ignored this or would sure, not certainly. acknowledge that 32 people died. Sure, it in was this a dilemma fire. for them, though. Oftentimes, those yeah. politicians felt like they were yeah. protecting their closeted friends that were higher up in power throughout the state, yeah. right? And they faced a dilemma of 32 people died. It was the deadliest fire in New Orleans history. It was yeah. the largest mass killing of homosexuals in U.S. history mm -hmm. at the time. It, you know, it, it was a record that stood 43 years until Pulse. And they faced two choices. Do I express sympathy? And do I validate what we, uh, back then was perceived as a very dangerous criminal group? Or do, yeah. I, or do I keep quiet about this yeah. and, and perhaps coyly do something behind the mm -hmm. scenes, but, ra but really run the risk of perhaps se seeming a little cold towards this event? Yeah. And they chose to appear that way. They chose instead to downplay yeah. the, the gravity of what well, had happened yeah. in this dire emergency. Yeah. And I, but I love the way at the upstairs house, you could go to church on Sunday morning you and then could, come yeah. back. Uh, and it was a great social place oh, where people was. could feel that they were themselves yeah. and be who they were. I'm glad you brought and this up. Yeah, the Metropolitan yeah, Community Church yeah, of New Orleans was a right. gay-affirming Christian fellowship. Imagine yeah. that. Not that many people know about what's called the MCC for short. And it still exists. That's it does. Today. It, yeah. yeah. It was an, at that, then it was, yeah. con, it was a very important, it offered a very important religious role to gays and lesbians yeah. who felt left out by the broader Christian movement. O of course, larger denominations viewed the whole oh, idea right. of right, gay Christianity yeah. as blasphemy. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but it was very important. And, and the Upstairs Lounge, for, for a span of time, played host um, to, 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 this, to this the church. MCC yeah. of New Orleans right. Church and allowed right. them to have Sunday services in the back room that, when service was done, blended into more boisterous fellowship in the bar area. Yeah, right. So you come in the morning, come back in the evening and have... have Correct. Yeah, right. Or you just stay there the you whole stay time. stay there the whole day. <laughs> <laughs> so... Tell us about the kind of person that would go. I mean, you talk about that a lot of them were blue collar. Yeah. Quite a few were veterans. Yes. And so tell us the type of person that would come to the Upstairs yeah. Lounge. They reminded yeah. me, because I've met a lot of the survivors and interviewed a lot okay. of them, I, they remind me a lot of um, my uncle who, who died of AIDS. They, they remind me a lot of his style of and his era of homosexual. So these were part of a, they, they were part of uh, a gay com a, a gay community at a time in gay life when mm -hmm. you it, gay life really celebrated its blue collar origins. Right. People ran the gamut gamut in terms of hyper masculine or hyper feminine characteristics, but they really contained multitudes. Um, we hadn't been broken off into archetypes yet. Right. Sure. Um, and uh, so there were longshoremen yeah. who would work really hard physical labor jobs. There were iron workers. There were people who were grocery store clerks. There was also corporate types that worked for Shell Oil and had to be closeted um, because of that nature. There was um, actually a technically a vice cop, but it was an individual who, a, a law enforcement officer who was straight, mm -hmm. um, but who was a member of the U.S. Customs um, yeah. would come to drink there because the, co the crowd was so welcoming. So yeah. it was a sort of um, all welcome, 
type of environment, very fun, uh, judgment-free, but they also did have rules within the confines of, of how to keep it sort of a, a social gathering place and a community gathering place. Right. So no drugs were permitted there and no drug use, which is something for the 1970s, actually, yeah. that a bar will not even permit, you know, marijuana smoke yeah, was a big right. deal. Yeah. Um, no, there was no sexual activity that was flagrant and overt involved. So the reputation of the idea that this wasn't a bathhouse. Right, this wasn't right. one of the more wilder bars. This was a place where couples went. Oftentimes yeah. couples who'd been joined in, they were unofficial spiritual conjugations oh, by yeah. the MCC church called Holy Unions. Okay. They sure. would come to meet each other. And it was a place you'd go to meet friends, or it's a place where you would go to make friends. People forget mm -hmm. that in today's bar culture and society where everyone just goes, you know, we, we go to meet people we already know usually. Back in the 70s, you would go to a bar to strike up a conversation and make a friend. And that yeah. was often common. And the yeah. bartender at the upstairs lounge, Buddy Resmussen, was a yeah. wonderful, garrulous character. What a great, great person. Yeah. And, and, and also his partner, his lover, was, was an interesting guy, too. He was, Adam Fontenot, yeah. 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 Sadly perished in the upstairs lounge yeah. fire. Up, up to that point, though, I mean, Buddy and Adam were, you know, centerpieces of, of the bar right um, and they really yeah. had made friends with everyone mm -hmm. um, and they were great conduits of conversation and then Adam Fontana had evidently a great singing voice and there was a oh, baby grand piano yeah. in the corner of the upstairs lounge yeah. where he would sit down after having a few and pound out a few jazz ditties and oftentimes you know there were piano players there that would take requests oh so yeah. this was just a this it was, was just a great a, place a great be. place to yeah. have fun so tell us about that night and, and what happened and with the arsonist. Yeah. And, and I know there's still, it has not been solved. But, it has But there are things you have talked about that, that were ignored. Right. Um, the police pretty much didn't put a lot of effort into solving this crime. Right, and yeah, it was a, a less than thorough investigation, yeah. certainly. Right. Um, yeah. That night was very busy at the Upstairs Lounge. So Sunday nights at the Upstairs Lounge, they hosted the biggest drink special of, of the week called the Beer Bus, which was two hours of bottomless draft beer for a dollar plus 50 cents for a returnable glass mug right so you got the 50 cents back this is was the 70s this was yeah. New Orleans this was and that was a good deal that is a great deal um, yeah. so uh, about 90 to 100 mostly gay men were just having the time of their lives on beer bus night it was even the beer bus night was so popular that it was listed and there was a secretive address book that gay travelers would have called the Bob Dr Dameron's address book okay. um, listed upstairs lounge is a very popular bar and make sure you go there on Sundays. Yeah. This was where. So it was a busy night at the bar and in the midst of all this fun, um, a kind of disturbed individual who was mm -hmm. known around the, the dingy block that the upstairs lounge mm -hmm. was located on called Iberville Street entered uh, and kind of provoked a silence. He looked like he was trouble. He looked yeah. like he was incredibly intoxicated and he was known to be a hustler and he was known to be violent. So people kind of paused and there was a, an instant silence in this otherwise large bar when this man entered and, and a sort of like a, oh, this guy's this here guy's again. Here. Yeah. And this guy, um, his name is Roger Dale Nunez, caused a bit of trouble and provoked a fight. And because he was already drunk, essentially he was knocked to the ground, knocked out by a single punch. His jaw was broken. I mean, Ooh. he was clocked. Yeah. Right. And while um, essentially, while the bartender and a couple other people were picking up Roger Dillinius and violently dragging him, him out, um, this disaffected individual, he screamed out, I'm gonna burn you all out. Or um, another person heard, I'm gonna burn this place to, to the ground. But he, he said the word burn as he's being thrown out. Right. Um, 
and criminologists look for something to establish probable right. cause called yeah. motive, means, and opportunity. So what you have there in that moment is what's called motive. You have an angry person being dragged out from a bar, rejected by what he perceives as a rival clique of fellow homosexuals, because mm -hmm. he, he was gay, Roger was gay himself, or gay for pay, depending on how right. you consider sure. it. He was getting dragged out and he says, I'm gonna burn this place to the ground. Then. Um, means a person matching Roger Dale Nunez's description walks into a nearby Walgreens and purchases a certain brand and certain size of lighter fluid. Then opportunity. That same brand and size of lighter fluid is emptied out in the front staircase of the upstairs lounge and then a spark is produced. Mm -hmm. Minutes after that, Roger Dale Nunez walks into, stumbles into a nearby bar looking, as witnesses described him, filthy, covered in black, as if Brown. soot. Yeah. And he says, thank God I just made it from the fire. And people turn to him being like, what fire are you talking about? So it's almost like this is, this yeah. is right. like the cat that ate the canary right. to a certain degree. Yeah. And you, you, I, kept, I kept wondering, how was this man never questioned? Right. right. How was this man never arrested? But I thought Buddy Rasmussen tried to point that out to the police. He did. The bartender of the right. upstairs lounge yeah. who had dragged Roger Dale Nunez out saw Roger wandering around with a cup of beer, looking again, looked like he was covered in soot, and tried to drag him to a nearby officer. And what happened was really strange. Um, this was after, as, as, after the fire had happened, after people had exited the bar um, in this kind of shocking, sudden way. And there are onlookers, and police tape is out. Buddy finds Roger Dale Nunez, attempts to take him to a police officer and say, you have to question this man. He right. was causing trouble in the bar before the fire. And the police officer essentially is like, um, you know, essentially move along here was the response. This was a time when police officers had never received any training for dealing with the subgroup of homosexuals. Yeah. They viewed them as part of the right. criminal element too. Mm. So that was never brought up again. I mean, no, this, never. Yeah. There's, all yeah. these, there's all these right. stray threads where you're just wow. wondering, why didn't they follow this? Why didn't they follow that? And even now, there are members of New Orleans and Louisiana law enforcement who keep the upstairs lounge open in, as a sort of oh, active so it's still, investigation. It's, it's an open case. And I asked them, I, I asked them, what do you think yeah. about all this? And one told me, he said, I, it confuses me why he was never questioned or arrested. Yeah. I, they, one, one individual who was a law enforcement officer said, I feel like they had him dead to rights, meaning dead to, they had him set to right. be arrested sure. and read sure. his Miranda yeah. rights. Wow. And 32 people died a horrific death. In they this. did. Yes. And it's, it's, it's just incredible. What, what, what was really sad for me is that some families were afraid to even claim bodies. And, they were. And some people were afraid to be put on a list of survivors because they thought they would, be, they would lose their jobs and all the, all the sort of ramifications oh, that could happen. Oh, there were all happen. sorts of penalties yeah. that could happen if your yeah. name was associated with this tragedy. Right. And many people had aliases, though, for mm -hmm. uh, when they went out to gay bars, though. So, for example, um, an individual named uh, Robert Van Langedonk went by the alias, who is an upstairs lounge survivor, went by the alias Robert Van or Bob Van sometimes. Mm -hmm. And when his name appeared in the newspaper as essentially a survivor of the fire, um, his coworkers at Shell Oil approached him and said, is this you, was, were you Were you in the, was, is this Bob Van you? And he goes, no, I don't know the guy, who the guy is. So in that instance, his alias provided him protection and enabled him to keep his career. Yeah. Cause it was, it, it was oh, considered, yeah. it was considered normal. It was considered standard that if you found out an employee was homosexual, gay or lesbian in, in 1973, y you let them yeah. go. That was cleaning out the riffraff. 
um, you let them go before they could commit another crime, or or there was this perception yeah. that essentially that yeah. gays were thieves or not to be trusted, and so essentially you had no chance. Yeah, and but but the thing is, so this this was tried to shove it under the rug, the whole thing in oh, some absolutely. ways, and ignored, and and in many different ways. And here are people that are just suffering from the loss of a loved one and so many other things. Oh, absolutely. But yet a movement started as a yeah. result. No, it's very which true. Is, which is really, really incredible. It's and a unique moment yeah, in the history of gay liberation. Right. You have, within hours of the upstairs lounge fire, gay leaders throughout the country in various cities, mm -hmm. both coasts, all hear about the fire. They all coordinate via telephone, and they all agree to fly in the next morning to reconnoiter near the bar and to, in essence, help the, a grieving community manage this emergency. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't find another example of that hap happening in the history of, yeah. of, of the gay movement. This yeah. was the first time, time. when yeah. essentially other cities responded to a common emergency. Um, and, and this I was, was moved done by July first, so this is basically like forty-six cities participated. Oh, absolutely, got, got engaged in this. Oh, absolutely, and yeah. uh, uh, every city essentially where there was a metropolitan community church, right. which was forty-six cities yeah. and the UK. Um, all got involved, all held memorials, mm -hmm, all, don mm -hmm. all donated blood, all donated wow. money. Uh, to a, they, f they founded a memorial fund for the New Orleans victims where you could send money into mm. a publication that still exists, but it was a ragtag publication back then called The yeah. Advocate in Los oh, Angeles. Yeah. So many men held up, uh, many men mailed in checks yeah. and many gay bars and gay clubs held benefits and fundraisers. And there was a series of, every, most every city, New Orleans didn't have this, had an alt-weekly or a small gay newsletter or publication. Mm -hmm. And most of those newsletters I found made the Upstairs Lounge their top story. So it was, the, the Upstairs Lounge had a very high national profile among this, the tiny cities, uh, really among the tiny gay liberation community that was still growing in cities mm -hmm. nationwide. But in New Orleans, there was a com nothing comparative to that level of yeah, visibility. People right. within days wanted this embarrassing wow. story to go away. Yeah. And you know, at, at the beginning of the book, I, l I love the way you talked about how social movements of many kinds, mm. uh, you can talk about civil rights, you can talk about um, LGBTQ rights, or so many different rights that, and, and different ones that happen in this country always have a body count. They do. It's so sad. I said so sad, but in and this tragedy really did. And when we see what happened at Pulse, you know, in Orlando, and but it 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 really does. And it but it's 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 so sad yeah. to think that there, there there has to be a body count when it it's comes sad. to social movements and 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 people's rights. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at the history of our country, though. Yeah. And we're. I mean, we are a. We, we, we're kind of a violent society. Yeah. We balance off the need for personal freedoms with, um, we balance off those personal freedoms stronger than our idea, uh, the idea that we need to have all lasting permanent safety. Yeah. And un un unfortunately, um, across many movements, it, it takes a death yeah. or several deaths for people to pause yeah. and make note and try to attempt to make social changes. Yeah. Oftentimes, if there isn't a death, people say, well, there isn't a problem. Yeah. Right. That's totally wrong, of course. 
So I know you talked the research you did, and you you moved down to New Orleans, so you'd be close. So, I was so down primary there for a source, while. secondary sources, yeah. interviews, I everything. I was down there. Yeah, I was very fortunate. So two of my very close friends had a had a bed available on their sunroom, essentially, and yeah. I made that my makeshift oh, home. Yeah. And they were two of my greatest friends in the world. They would this book would not have been possible oh, without that's, them. That's cool. And I um I spent probably about two years of the past four wow. um, down there. Uh, trying to understand New Orleans culture, mm -hmm. trying to uh, have adventures and misadventures there, so that I, and that yeah. is a city for misadventures. By the way, I oh, want to tell you, oh. <laughs> I, I've been there. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we used to live in Mississippi and, and Louisiana. So oh, I mean, okay. So I, I've been <laughs> yeah. to Lafayette, Louisiana. But I wanted to be able times. to write about it in a way that felt yeah. true to the soul of the place, because that yeah. that is a great a great American city. I mean, if it wasn't for New Orleans, I'm convinced that Americans wouldn't have any fun. The French yeah. influence, yeah. the parade influence of this place, the way that fact that Americans like to have parties and we like to laugh there is nothing of the Puritan mindset in anything I just described <laughs> there and I think that's because yeah. of the heart of New Orleans yeah. pulses in all of yeah. us so a, a couple quick questions about growing up in Naperville sure and also with with parents that are engaged your yeah. dad um, a, a Naperville City Councilman yeah and 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 so your parents were activists I mean they did a lot of they've done a lot of things yeah they were so what kind of influence did that have on you and knowing how that influenced even your yeah. writing career yeah um, my dad encouraged my writing from a very early age so starting probably about in sixth grade he'd sit down with me and edit help me edit at school essays late into yeah. the night he has a very he's a passion for writing and a passion for the clarity of language right. he has a legal background um, but also my dad does have very strong political beliefs and he's not afraid to say them um, he can sometimes yeah. be quite forthright <laughs> um, and I do have that element of his personality in my writing I think yeah. I don't there's a sort of do I dare disturb the universe yeah. aspect in some things and a certain degree of um, something you could call it hubris or fearlessness um, yeah. in, in the way in the way that sometimes I'm willing to say things brashly or um, or not round off the edges. My mom, um, my mom raised four kids while um, going to college and earning her B.A. in uh, cultural anthropology so my mom was always about considering the other angle of things and considering other cultures and I think um, that really mattered a lot mm -hmm. to me growing up the idea because Naperville is a wonderful middle-class utopia excellent public schools right. bookstores like this the library down the street is fantastic there's a lot of things to be envious of but also growing up here it is so safe they call it they it can be it can bubble you in yes, a little bit exactly it has a, called the bubble to yeah, a middle-class yes. mentality um, and because uh, really because of my because of my father's personality I think and his passions and I think of because of my mother's commitment to always bringing us to museums always bringing us to art gallery openings taking me to go see weird movies when I wanted to see Ghostbusters <laughs> I think because of all yeah. of those things sure. um, I, I think it led to me being interested in these kind of topics that I write about yeah right so, and I know you went to Columbia, you got your, your master's in journalism yeah. there, and um, you received a, a Pulitzer Traveling Fellowship, I did. which is very cool. Thank you. But you graduated co-valedictorian. I did. Wow. Thank you so <laughs> yeah. much. Yeah. No, yeah. that was a really great day. Yeah. That was like, 
um, that that was probably the greatest day of my life besides yeah. the day besides the day I got married which was better I <laughs> oh, need to remember to God. say that so I'm not in trouble yeah, so, oh yes you can't no, but that was my because yeah. I love Harry Potter that was my Gryffindor yeah. wins the house cup moment it was really special oh, I didn't yeah. expect they read out the top five students at the graduation sure. ceremony and I was a part-time student who'd been working and I really wasn't um, part of a lot of the co my cohorts daily yeah. student life culture and I really didn't expect anything and yeah. when that happened it was just it was so shocking and so special yeah. it really convinced me really placed a, a it really emphasized for me that maybe I should be thinking about writing as a permanent occupation yeah. and literary and non literary nonfiction writing specifically right. yeah well I, I think with with this book um, I think you you you've written something we all need to learn about. Oh my gosh, thank you. And that's something that's been hidden away. And I think it's it's a really it's a really important book that we know this part of our history. Thank you. I, I agree. I think it's very important, not just because I wrote if someone else had written it, I would want to read this yes. book. Oh exactly. And I think it's it's a part of our history that we can't repeat. And we see what happened at Pulse and, and I know some of the people you interviewed were not willing to be interviewed until the Pulse nightclub tragedy occurred. They did, and then yeah, they came forward. Right. It's you know, I try to I, I try to follow a Studs Terkel approach to interviewing. Yeah, so people yeah. um, I let peop individuals speak to me when they want to, if they want to, in the place they want to. Yeah. And a, a lot of the survivors had experienced such trauma, um, that it was very difficult yeah. for them to be able sure. to rehear to rehash this out with me because it would mean they were reliving this moments oh. in a way that might not provide catharsis because they can't go back and fix anything that happened. Right. So when the Pulse nightclub shooting happened, though, it was so I got so many phone calls almost immediately. Individuals had been so on the fence about do I participate mm -hmm. in this book? Do I do I take the emotional risk of of delving into that darkness again they called me with a sense of urgency and they were like no i need to talk to you now yeah. it was one of those wow. things where now and some of these people yeah. i'd been doing an email or a text dance for about three years and they and and this this was the impetus that had let them open it up moved to them, talk and about it, it. it greatly moved me well, it actually. had it been cathartic because a yeah. catharsis for yeah. them as well. Yeah, it, it may have oh. been. I mean, yeah. I, I just I had many conversations yeah. with survivors at the upstairs lounge fire that I I would wouldn't take back for the world. They yeah. were the most some of the greatest honors of my life. And I know you're going to be speaking at ALA down in New Orleans. Oh my gosh, you're which is so me. Yeah. No, it's a no. I'm sorry, but it's, it's a like, huge I think honor. It's an honor. No, it's I think a huge this honor, and honor it's a little intimidating. It's intimidating. It's yeah. not, and it's yeah. because. I I know why it's I had to yeah. I couldn't figure out why I'm a first time author. It's not because of obviously I'm yeah. not a superstar. I'm not Michael Michael Lewis or anything like that. It's because we're nearing the forty fifth anniversary right. of the upstairs lounge fire and I think the city wanted to make a statement. This That's is compelling right. history. Um and also we're you know, 15 years away from the decriminalization of homosexuality at Lawrence v. Texas in 2013. So to understand the upstairs lounge, you do have to take right. a really unsparing look at what the closet was at a, at a, as a cultural institution. That's right. And I think people in this current political climate, LGBT and LGBT allies really want to make a statement of support and say that this history matters. That's right. And we're revising it to tell the truth. Yeah, and so That's in right. some sense, I'm the vessel for this. Yeah, uh, I got to be the, the I had yeah. the privilege of being the vessel for this story. Well, like I said, this is a very important book, and thank you for writing it. Thank you so much. What an incredible conversation with one of Naperville's own 
Bobby Fiesler, Robert Filster. This is his debut nonfiction book. It's called Tinderbox. It's the untold story of the Upstairs Lounge and the rise of gay liberation. An incredible history back from 1973. It is incredibly informable. You will love it. Tinderbox, thanks for joining me on Authors Revealed.